Some weeks ago, we concluded our consideration of the opening remarks of this epistle. And we noted that Paul's approach from the very outset of the letter is to thrust his readers into the presence of God. And he consistently reminds them of who and what they were or are in light of the salvation that they had received in Christ. Remember, no less than ten times in ten verses does Paul mention the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's he's doing that on purpose. Because as we said, there's no way that a a true believer constantly being brought into the presence of Christ in in thought, in word, can continue uh, carrying on in patterns of sin. He's, he's, He's beginning this way on purpose. In verses 2 and 3... Paul reminded them that the church belongs to God, that they're consecrated to God because of Christ's work, not their own works, that they're called to be a holy people, and that the church in Corinth is one of many churches who all share this singular commitment to Jesus Christ as the one and only Lord. Then in verses 4 through 9, he describes his prayer of thanksgiving. He affirms the clear and obvious work of God's grace in their midst uh, while avoiding any tendency to flattery. Remember, he constantly brings them back to the the roots of all of this, which is the nature of God. We saw there in verse 9, God is faithful. But also the nature of their salvation, the distilled essence of which is union with God the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's begun already, just in these opening statements, to squelch their prideful inclinations by showing them the foundation of all of the work of grace that that they see in their church is ultimately God's eternal faithfulness to His Son. And they, just, just like us as Christians, We are the beneficiaries of God's love for His Son and our having been joined to His Son through the Holy Spirit. And all of this is going to reach something of a climax in verse 31 where he says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When you read this letter, you find out people were boasting about many different things. So from the very beginning, he's, he's driving them to this point. If anybody's going to boast in that church, it had better be in the Lord, not yourselves. We don't have anything in ourselves to boast in. That's, that's the way he begins. Remember also that what we typically consider the big problems in Corinth as we work through the letter are actually the symptoms of the bigger, deeper problem. They're all fruits that grow from the root of pride, of self-promotion, and of rank individualism and... and going all the way back to one of the introductory messages, just remember that their worldview was referred to by one commentator as, quote, the postmodern pragmatism of the market. In other words, postmodernism, truth is relevant. relevant. Pragmatism, do whatever it takes to achieve your goal, of the market. The idea is to climb, to get ahead. That was the worldview of the average Corinthian. Their chief aim was the reckless development of the individual. And the average Corinthian, quote, recognized no superior but his own desires. That's the world that they lived in. Now, these people have been redeemed. These are Christians that he's talking to. He'll say it later on, that they had been washed, they had been sanctified, they had been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. They were new creatures in Christ, he says in the second epistle. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. But as we all know, becoming a new creature doesn't mean that instantaneously all of the remnants of sin are gone. All of of those inclinations that we have lived in up until that point just immediately vanish. We all carry our remaining corruptions with us. The same was true with them. And sadly, we know this to be the case, and and this was the case with them, very often the the remaining corruption that is in us finds the most, uh, the best circumstances to manifest itself in the church. 
when the people of God come together, we can, very often we can go out into the world and, and we, maybe nobody really even notices. We don't even notice some of the corruptions that might still be in us. But when we come in and amidst the people of God, it's like this stuff just sort of shows itself very easily. It finds occasion in the life and activities of the church. And that's what's happening in, this, in the church in Corinth. So as we move into the body of the, the epistle... The Apostle Paul is going to begin to address several of the most glaring manifestations of pride in the church. And he begins with divisions that they, they had over various teachers. As he addresses these issues, he will constantly bring them back to the themes that he began with. And preeminently, the cross of Christ and their union with Him. Remember, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. And that doesn't mean merely that he brings a particular message, but that in his entire lifestyle and his message, he is meant to be a walking, talking billboard of this idea of suffering for the salvation and the sanctification of other, of other people. A, the, the way of the cross, we might call it. Paul lived that out before people. And he teaches and writes in such a way to bring the people of God, back to this, this mindset. The, the way of the cross is the way for the people of God. So before we move much further, what I want to do is give a little bit of a layout of the way that he goes about addressing this first issue of divisions over teachers. So if you have your Bible in front of you, we read verse 10. That's sort of the primary appeal for unity that he makes. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. In verse 13, he leads them to what ought to be the unifying factor for us all, which is Jesus Christ. Is Christ divided? In other words, how could it be that you people who have been joined together around this one figure and are called, referred to spiritually as the body of Christ, how could it be that there's divisions? Christ is the, the unifying factor. And then from that point all the way through chapter 2, he, he works to push them away from glorying in Him or any other teacher by explaining how the preaching of the cross and the effectiveness of that preaching are, are completely otherworldly. They are not in line with the wisdom of this world. Completely contrary. It doesn't work in uh, the, the Christian world. It doesn't work in the church. It doesn't work amongst the people of God the way it works in the world. It's backwards. They promote themselves. They strive to advance. They will clamor and climb over one another to get to the top. But what did Christ say to His disciples? Whoever will be the greatest must be servant of all, the last will be first. That's, that's the way of the cross. He's, he's showing them that he, nor can any other teacher, take credit for what is happening. It's not about the teachers or the preachers themselves. In chapter 3, he, he will explain how irrational it is to boast in any teacher because those teachers, if there is an effect, if they are effective, if there is fruit, well, they're just laborers in God's field. They are merely co-laborers with God. One might plant and one might water, but God gives the growth. So, so to stand back and divide and boast over your, your favorite teachers, that doesn't make any sense at all. It's irrational. And then in chapter 4, he, he returns again to that apostolic pattern, which is the very opposite of worldly promotion. It's one of suffering. He says, we're, we're like, we're, we're like the, the last of all. We're the least of all men. The way of the cross. So that's sort of a, a really high flyover of this first main section of the letter, just so you can see how it works. It, we, we tend to see these headings in our Bibles and we think, well, he talks about divisions over teachers and then he moves on to all of these other things. But really, it's all a part of one main idea that there's no reason why the people of God would divide over something like their favorite preacher because those men are merely laborers with God. All of the fruit, all of the effectiveness and the life comes from God. So then, I want to begin today by looking at that opening appeal for unity. Verse 10 again. I appeal to you, brothers, 
by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, I think it'll help us think through this verse if we break it up into two main parts. There is first the primary exhortation followed by the precise explanation. In other words, it starts start kind of broad and then narrow into some of the specifics of what he's trying to convey to them. So if you're taking notes, the first heading would be the primary exhortation. The primary exhortation, the main thing that Paul is aiming at, the, the main thing that he's trying to accomplish in the church in Corinth as he begins this, this thought... We see it in these words, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. That's the primary exhortation. Now, under this heading, I want to note first the manner in which Paul gives this exhortation. We've noted before that his method with dealing with the Corinthians is different than his way in dealing with other churches, especially like the Galatians. He's, he's much more kind and tender to this church because the issues amongst them aren't ultimately so uh, closely dangerous. Notice the manner. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. The manner of Paul's exhortation is an appeal. I appeal to you. Now, th- this word... Appeal. I'm going to say the Greek term because I think when you hear it, some of you will say, I recognize where that word comes from. The word appeal here is the word parakaleo, or, or in that same family of words. It's the same family of words that are translated with words like encourage, or exhort, or even advocate, or the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit that Jesus speaks of in in the latter chapters of, of John, that's the same word here. We, you've heard the Holy Spirit called the paraclete. This is the same idea, an appeal. The word means to call alongside. Like an advocate in court who you would call to, to stand beside you and plead your case. Tell them the truth. Tell them that what I'm saying is, is right. Bear witness for me. You know where I was on such and such a day and such and such a time. Be my advocate. Uh, you call them alongside. It's also a descriptive of, uh, of a person who, when we use it to describe encouragement or exhortation, you might imagine a friend coming alongside you and putting their arm around you to urge you to walk in a particular direction. That's an exhortation, an encouragement. Sometimes the five and six-year-olds like to try to be an encouragement to the two- and three-year-olds who are just barely learning how to walk. And so they'll try to kind of help them to their parents and, and they just push too hard. They just push them over. They're trying to help. They're trying to urge them in a direction. By, and you have to say, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. Don't push, don't push. They're, they're not stable enough to walk yet. That, that's the picture. I want to help. I want to put my arm around you, stand beside you, and urge you in a particular direction. That's the, the picture behind this word appeal. The manner of his exhortation is an appeal Listen to how he uses it when he writes to Philemon in, in Philemon 8 and 9. He says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is re- required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. See the contrast. I could command. I have the authority to command. Everything that I'm saying is worthy of a command, but I, w- I would rather for love's sake Go the the route of appeal. I want to appeal to you. That's what he's doing here in 1 Corinthians. He's appealing. Although I think it's safe to assume, at least at this point, what he is compelling them to do is worthy of a command. He could have commanded it. The fact that he appeals doesn't take that authority or the, the force of a command away from it. The appeal expresses love on his account. The appeal reveals that Paul knows that this thing is good for them. He desires their good. He wants them to see that it is good and for them to move in that direction. An appeal 
sort of applies to one's reasoning faculties and their affections. It tries to get the person to consider the matter for themselves, to pursue it for themselves because they ultimately see the benefit of it rather than just obedience for obedience sake. Fine, I'll do what you say because you won't stop commanding or, or I'm afraid of the consequences and therefore I'll do it. No, that's, that's not what an appeal is for. An appeal wants the person to come to it and see the goodness of it themselves. Paul is saying, I want you to see the goodness of unity, to pursue it, and then to grow in your own experience and appreciation of it. I don't want you to just get along just because I said get along. I'm appealing to you to see this. Notice also the even references to his own association with them in this exhortation. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. He's referring to all of the believers there in Corinth. They are all spiritual siblings. Paul is a spiritual sibling with them. He's, he's tying them himself to them. He said, I'm, I'm with you in this. I see the benefit of this. I want you to see the benefit of this. We all are together in this pursuit of unity. He's not standing over them and commanding them to do something that he himself has no experience in or has no uh, desire to pursue for himself. He comes alongside them as a brother to urge them to unity. This word brother is used 39 times in this epistle, by, by far more than it's used anywhere else in any of his epistles. You see, the way that he approaches them, the manner of his approach is, is not heavy-handed leadership. He approaches them as a fellow with them, a brother. That's the manner. He's appealing to them as a brother. But like I said, that doesn't mean that there's no sense of authority, that there's no weight be behind what he's saying. When he appeals, that doesn't mean to imply that they could hear it and say that he's just making a suggestion or he's leaving them with the option to do it or not do it, that they can take it or leave it. That's not the idea here either. Consider the potency with which he makes this appeal. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now by potency, I mean strength or, or power that comes behind this. Or we might think in terms of leverage that comes with this appeal. Paul appeals to them. He doesn't command them. He appeals. But with this appeal, he uses as leverage, as weight, as potency, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, which to a Christian is a very powerful persuasive. That's potent to us. That adds weight to anything that's being said, whatever the manner might be. He does this in other places like in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Well, what Christian hears of the mercies of God and says, well, I think I'll just leave it. What else you got? Well, we don't do that. Romans 15.30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Well, we don't hear that and say, well, that, that doesn't really uh, bear much weight with me. I take that with a grain of salt. No, that, these, are, these are heavy things to us. The goal behind this approach is to add weight or potency to the appeal without coming through with the perceived coldness of a command. Sometimes a bare command might, might be received in such a way the person being commanded thinks well, they don't even really care about this thing themselves. They're just telling me to do it because it needs to be done. But that's not happening here. We, we might imagine that in the, in the inner thought life, the, the affections or the will within the Corinthians, Paul makes the appeal, appeal and that sort of puts the scales at a balance as to whether or not they will or they will not obey. We, we were divided. The apostle has appealed, so now we're kind of on edge. We're not really sure if we want to pursue unity or not. But then he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that adds weight. That way adds potency to what he's saying. Paul is appealing. He's not commanding. 
but the appeal comes with the potency of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As it pertains to unity, this is important for every Christian. When Paul urges the Christians in Ephesus to unity in Ephesians 4, 3, and 6, he urges them to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, uh, of all who is over all and through all and in all. I think all, if we took all of that from Ephesians 4 and we crammed it into one name, it would be the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the name uh, through which we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the name by which we are brought into the one body, the name because of which we come to have this one hope, that we're reconciled to this one Father. It, it, it's, it's the same idea, just less words. I'm appealing to you in this name of the Lord Jesus Christ, referring to all that He is, all that He's done, all that we've received in light of who He is and what He's done. Of course, we know all three terms Lord, Jesus, Christ. We know all three of those terms are loaded with theological content that applies directly to us and our salvation. And yet at the same time, it's one singular name, one name that binds all Christians together. One shared Lord, one shared salvation, one prophet, one priest, one king. We all uh, revolve around and are drawn to and united by this one figure, the Lord Jesus Christ. Add to that fact that this one name is the greatest and the highest and the chiefest of all names. As Paul says in Philippians, the name that is above every other name. Put all that together and even though Paul says... I'm appealing. I'm not commanding per se. I'm appealing. That appeal in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that should immediately melt the heart of every Christian. Every believer should melt when they hear that name. It's, it's our coldness. It's our remaining corruption and sin. It's our remaining unbelief that causes that, that keeps us from melting every time we hear it. Paul makes this loving appeal to his brothers and sisters. He appeals to their own consciences and he does so, as it were, with the Lord Jesus Christ standing at his shoulder. When he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's as if Christ himself is standing there with the apostle. Now think about it. How hard would our, our hearts have to be to hear this appeal to unity turn to see where the voice was coming from and, and see the nail-pierced hands of our risen Savior held out making this appeal. I appeal to you that all of you agree. How hard would we have to be to pull our shoulder away from Him and say, no, I think I'll just, I'll, I'll maintain my cause that I've been working for. I'll maintain my pathway even though that means trampling on my brothers and sisters. When we think about this this Christ who is the eternal Son of God, who humbled Himself, took on flesh, was born of a virgin, walked the earth in our bones and our flesh, became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh with us, washed the feet of His disciples, carried His own cross as far as He could to Calvary and then laid upon it and was hung on a cross for our sake, how can we contemplate that, really look at that, really consider it, really unite around it, and then turn and look at our brothers and sisters and maintain divisions and controversies and, and, and trample one another? The only way it would be that we haven't truly apprehended what He's done, who He is. We haven't really thought about it. It's never clicked with us. We might affirm it. We might say that it's true, I believe those things, but we've never really looked because once you really look at who Christ is and what He's done for our sake and you've really cast yourself upon Him, you don't maintain these, these haughty uh, thoughts about yourself and lording yourself over other people in the congregation. It doesn't happen. Christ wasn't that way. This is the potency behind Paul's appeal, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come to the real substance of the exhortation. His chief concern 
in his words is that all of you agree. That all of you agree. If we, if we translated this literally, he would say, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in order that all keep on speaking. Now, when we hear that, we say, eh, I'm not really sure what you're getting at. The, the scholars tell me that this is an idiom that comes from the Greek political sphere, that the, the original audience would have understood what this meant. The context helps us to understand and, and interpret the phrase, and even though we might not be familiar with Greek political uh, language or theory, as the apostle was, our English translations help us. It means that we agree, that all of you agree. You might have all speak the same thing or all speak in agreement. That's the idea. Obviously, he doesn't mean that all Christians are to come together and we are expected to mimic or parrot one another's speech. That there's, you know, we all just say literally the exact same words. That's, that's not what he's saying. We know that. The idiom refers to agreement which comes out in a verbal expression of unity. Think of a, of a, a political body. I don't know what it might have been in the ancient world, a, an ancient type of senate or something to that effect where they, the, all of the men in that body would have to cast their vote. They would all have to verbally say, this is the side we are on, this or that side. It wasn't a hidden agreement. It w- wouldn't be a pretended agreement where you said something, but you really didn't believe it internally. It's real. It's internal and it's expressed. We agree. We are together. That's what he's, he's saying. I want you to come to that place. So when it comes to the primary exhortation, Paul lovingly urges the saints in light of who Christ is and who they are in Him and on behalf of Christ's authority that they agree. That they say the same thing. They come to this type of agreement. Now, The second heading is the precise explanation. In the latter part of the the verse, Paul explains precisely what he means with that figure of speech in the former part. We see that in these words. That, or to the end, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. I think it's always helpful as much as we can to state truths when we have opportunity, to state truths in this way, in terms of negative and positive. Here's what I want to not happen. Here's what I want to happen. When it comes to beliefs, here's what I do believe. Here's what I don't believe. Here's the negative. Here's the positive. Make it very clear. That's what he's doing. What does he mean when he says, he uses this phrase, all of you agree in our English. Negatively, he means no divisions. Positively, unity in mind and judgment. The the kind of agreement that is aimed at here is one in which there are no divisions. That word divisions is the word from which we get our word schisms, schismata, schisms, or we might say factions, or we might say in our modern vernacular, cliques. No clicks. The word is used by our Lord in Matthew 9.16. He says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. That's this word, schism. A worse schism is made. A rip. If If you consider the picture in that illustration... There's a pulling away from the broader, intact piece of cloth. You've got a shirt, you've got a hole in it, you put a piece of brand new cloth on it, cut perfectly to fit the hole, you put it in the washing machine, that cloth shrinks and it tears. It makes a bigger schism, a hole separated from the, the larger piece of cloth, the, the shirt, the blanket, whatever it might be. So here Paul's saying that the saints should agree, meaning negatively that there will be no schisms. No factions, no cliques, no small groups pulling away from the broader church. Now, this is interesting, and, and, and John Owen wrote a lot about schisms, because in his day, if you separated from the Roman Catholic Church, or if you separated from the Church of England, you were called a schismatic. 
And they said, see, Paul says right here, no schisms. And so he had to write and say, that's not what Paul was talking about. He actually, Owen actually goes on to say, there are many times when good Christian people need to leave bad churches. And that's, that's appropriate and right. The point here, though, is not that people are leaving a particular church. They're still in the church. There's a schism amongst the people in the body. All, the, 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 those who constituted these various factions or schisms were still a part of the church in Corinth. They had not left the church completely. And this might actually be worse. They were still within the church and yet separating into different groups, collecting themselves into various smaller groups, each of them identifying themselves with its own distinct preferences. As we'll see later on, I am of this, I am of that. This is how we define ourselves, and that's how they define themselves. All of it in the same church. What's Paul saying? Don't do that. Simply put, don't do that. Stop it. Negatively. Don't do that. Positively, he urges that they be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The word united here means to mend or repair. To bring back to a state of usefulness. When we read of James and John in Matthew 4, mending their nets, putting them back together so that they would be useful, that's the word here. United. We see it used also in Galatians 6 with this same idea of unity. Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That word restore is the same word here, unite. Put back into working order. Also used of... Uh, setting a broken bone back into place. So Paul's appealing to them, not, not merely to, to unity absolutely or, or in a, just a, a general sense, but a restoration of the unity that ought to be among the saints and more than likely was among the saints in Corinth from the start, but they had lost. In other words, the idea, again, is of putting something back the way it ought to be, repairing it, going back to a former state of, of usefulness, setting it back into place. This unity, apparently, had fallen to the wayside. And isn't this often the case in churches, especially young churches like ours, church plants and things like that? Early on, everybody shows up and you pretty much just talk about everything that you agree on. Everybody gets along. You think, man, this is amazing. We all believe the exact same thing about everything. This is wonderful. You know, the four things that we talk about, we all agree about it. Then the longer you go, the more you get to know people. And the more you, you, you get a little deeper into their lives and you realize, well, there, there are some differences among us. We, we're, we're not all... It's not just a uniform way of thinking and doing and living and, and all of that. These differences arise... And that's to be expected. That's normal. It's not normal when everybody across the board, without exception, believes exactly the same thing about every single topic. That's not normal. Um, that, will, that will be our state in glory. But in this life, that's just not normal. We, we should expect these types of things to arise. And, and the, the issue here is not ultimately the fact that they're are or will be differences in, in a group of people. The issue is how we deal with those differences. When they come up, what do we do? Will we deal with them in humility? Or will we use our differences to divide into various factions, each group tearing away from the whole, W-H-O-L-E, the whole, tearing away so that the whole really becomes useless. It's not effective. A net with a hole in it is no good. A, a net has to be together. And maybe you, you might not feel like you're that type of person. I've not separated myself from anybody. Or maybe you don't. Maybe this is not something that we, we physically see with our eyes. But you might be the type of person who just does this mentally. You sort of go ahead and begin to um, you know, spreadsheet people in your mind. You, know, you, you consign people to different categories in your mind. 
well, those, those two families, they believe this, they don't do this, they do that. Those three men, they see it this way, while I see it this way. And, and I think I overheard her say this one time, so at their house, that must be the, what, what they do. And you just put people in these categories so that you, you view everyone in these different groups. Again, that's not uncommon that there be differences. The problem is when we, we take these differences and we elevate them to the status of self-identification. I am of this camp. What camp are you of? Not of this camp? Okay, then you need to stay over there. And we, we elevate these things so that they divide us. Others who share your view will be gathered close. They will be your closest companions while people who don't share your view are pushed aside. If somebody takes a contrary view or has a different opinion, well, because you have identified yourself with that, your view, their view is now not just a contrary opinion. They are against you. They hold that belief because they, they must think this of me. If they believe that and I believe this, they, they must not like me. Or we take our various beliefs once we, they, they rise to the surface and we assume that there is an intellectual or spiritual ignorance on behalf of the person who doesn't take my view. But what that means is I'm superior. There's a superiority in my view over them. They are inferior. Well, they believe that. <laughs> have they ever read the Bible? <laughs> I'm sure they have. We just we act like that. I'm, I'm smarter than them. Are they so stupid that they can't agree with me? And, and we people divide up into these factions and we elevate ourselves over one another. And this happens in the churches of Jesus Christ. Of Christ where every one of us ought to be characterized with at least a little dose of self-doubt. I'm not... I mean, I think this, but I'm willing to be proven wrong. But also, we ought to be, be scrambling to wash one another's feet in the way that we deal with one another. Not exalting ourselves over each other. To say nothing about what this could do to a church, it certainly has no place in the heart of any Christian to take differences, elevate them to the status of this is how I identify myself and then use that to set yourself at enmity or at, at, at a, a contrariness with other believers. And, and we're going to go further into this. Hopefully you understand we're not talking about foundational bedrock um, doctrines and practices that are very clear from Scripture. Um, and I don't, I don't think that's... What, what was happening here as they followed these various teachers, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Christ. I don't think Paul came teaching one thing. Apollos came teaching something completely different. Peter came teaching something completely different. All of it contrary to Christ. And they had to divide up into what doctrine they were going to believe. I don't think that's what's happening. I believe that these all, all these men taught the same things. They just probably had a different way of presenting it and these people. So we'll get into where we ought to have unity and where it is fine to disagree. But... This type of elevating preferential things shouldn't be in our hearts. Paul goes on, he presses them to be of the same mind and the same judgment. There's a, a progression in these words, mind and judgment. The mind would be your intellectual activities. You're thinking, you're processing, you receive information, you, you, you sort of work your way through it, you process it. That, that's, that, that faculty where you do all those things... Your judgment is the determined opinion that you come to at the end of all of that mental work, a settled conclusion of your thoughts. So to say, I want you to be of the same mind and of the same judgment is to say, I want you to be of the same thinking and also of the same opinions or same views, the same information leading you to the same conclusions, same thoughts producing the same convictions. Think of it this way. Some of you, you remember in math class, you'd have a, a test. And one of the things you had to do in your test was show your work. What is that? That's because they, they want to make sure you're not secretly holding a calculator under your desk. You just write down the answer. Well, how did you get that answer? Well, when you show your work, you're showing you know how to process through the problem to get to the conclusion. We want to all come to the same answer but we want to use the same order of operations to get to that answer because that's what math is. It's learning the process, not 
all of the answers. This is kind of the idea here. Your mind, being of the same mind, that would be your work. Show your work, your processes, how you're, how you're functioning and reasoning through these things, but also the same judgment, the same answer at the end of it. Come to the same answers using the same way of thinking, the same order of operations. If we all come to say that the answer is 50, but one group is working with 5 and 10, and another group is working with 25 and 2, well, we've not actually done the same problem even though we might have the same answer. And eventually, if we're not careful, it won't be long before you're saying 15 and I'm saying 27. Because now we're, we're coming to completely different answers because we're doing different work. Those of you who are uh, still trying to work through that, just, just move on past it. Austin knows exactly what I just did. <laughs> what, what Paul's saying is, I want you all to come to a unity both in your conclusions and in your thinking, the way that your minds uh, receive and process information. If we return to the use of the same language with reference to the torn cloth and mending fishing nets, Paul is appealing to them to take the needle and thread of love and weave it in and out of their thinking and their convictions, their judgments, and then pull it tight so that they are drawn together in, in these ways. Drawn together. He's desiring a close-knit community. Pulled together. Put the thread through it. Draw it back together tightly where it's been broken. In your mind and in your judgments. So right out of the, the introduction, and then he mentions his prayer of thanksgiving... His first matter of business is to use the name of Christ to urge the saints in Corinth to this unity of mind and judgment. He considers this of chief importance in this church. Right out of the gate, I appeal to you that you agree, there be no divisions, be of the same mind and the same judgment. So then what is the doctrine? What's the teaching for us? Here's the way I would state it. Obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. Obtaining and maintaining unity must be our primary or be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. Or I could put it this way. Obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary, I should say, must be among your primary and consistent labors as a church member. Obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church and each of us as church members. I don't think it's a stretch for me at all to stand here as an elder in this congregation and to say, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters by the name of our shared Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be of the same mind and of the same judgment. And then to conclude that by saying, and that is the word of God to you today. That's what God says from His, His word to us. It's the same in Corinth as it is with us, the same as with us as it was with them. The situation, the, 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 the context might be a little different, but I don't think the context is so different that it completely translates into a, a, a totally different teaching in our day. And we'll see this is throughout the New Testament. Many of us here are aware of the harmful effects of what we call autoimmune diseases. Uh, a name given to many different ways in which a, a human body, for, for one reason or another, actually attacks itself. If there be any among us who desire to see Covenant Bible Church on life support in the years to come because of an ecclesiastical autoimmune disease that has ripped this body apart from the inside out, all you have to do today is decide that obtaining and maintaining unity will not be among your normal pursuits as a Christian or that this is not something you're after as a church member. You don't have to try to cause division any more than a gardener has to try to grow weeds. You don't have to try. 
All you have to do is sit back and let your natural inclinations be your guide and it will rip this church apart from the inside out. That's why it has to be said, agree. Labor toward unity. I heard a phrase while I was out of town a couple weeks ago that when I heard it, and it, and, and it settled in my mind as, as to what had just been said. It scared me to death. And I told the man after he said it, I said, when you said that, it scared me in my seat. And the phrase was, one generation church. A one generation church. Now, we know that God is supremely sovereign over all of the affairs of His churches. Christ is the only head of His church. If God's desire is that this, this church, 11 years old last month, if His desire is that this work here cease with, this, with the generation of adults that are in this room, that's ultimately up to Him. But the thought of that causes me to tremble. Now, if you want to do all in your power to guarantee that that will happen, that when the adults in this room die, this church won't, won't even be here anymore. We, there are churches like that, you understand. That there are people meeting there that, that literally, when the last one dies, the church doesn't exist. Okay, if, if you want that to be, then all you have to do is ignore the biblical admonition to unity. Just ignore it. Because nothing will keep you here. If nothing keeps you here, nothing will keep your children here. You won't teach your children to be united to the other children. You won't engender relationships amongst the next generation. And we'll be done with the passing of this generation if we make it that long. We might not even make it that long. If we have no aspirations to unity. And we will be a one-generation church. Now, I have no desire for that. If that's God's purpose and plan, then, then I say, your will be done. I've prayed the opposite of that for 11 years. That there would be generation after generation after generation of believers in a, in, a, in a church here. But we have to strive for it. We have to labor after it. In Hebrews 12, 14, we read these words, Strive for peace with everyone. Now I do believe in the context there, it's talking about all people. But working from the, the broader group to the, the, the closer group, I think that would assume that you're striving for peace with those who are closest to you. And we'll look at other texts, Lord willing, next week. You're going to strive, or you must strive for peace with those who are in your church. And the word strive there means pursue, put to flight, chase, persecute even. Go after peace. Now why does this language have to be used? In the Bible, why does Paul have to say, I appeal to you that you all agree, that there be no divisions? Why does Paul have to say in Hebrews, strive for peace with everyone? Why, does, why, why this language? Listen to Calvin. He says, men are so born that they all seem to shun peace. For all study their own interest, seek their own ways, and care not to accommodate themselves to the ways of others. Unless we strenuously labor to follow peace, we will never retain it. For many things will happen daily, affording occasion for discords. This is the reason why the apostle bids us to follow peace. As though he had said, though it ought not only be cultivated as far as it may be convenient to us, but that we ought to strive with all care to keep it among us. And this cannot be done unless we forget many offenses and exercise mutual forbearance. In other words, why, why, why this language? Why strive, chase after, agree, get along, no divisions? Why does that have to even be said? Well, the answer is because in our sin, in our natural condition, we spurn the very idea of peace with other men. We don't care about unity. In our natural condition, because of sin, we, would, we spend our days seeking ourselves and our own interests. At best... We are indifferent to the interests of others. At worst, we are hostile to others and their interests. Therefore, seeing that 
indifference at best and hostility at worst is our natural tendency. If we don't work hard to gain, strive after, chase after peace, it won't happen. Every moment of every day, every thought we have, every occasion offers us the opportunity to turn inward to ourselves and against other people. So the Scriptures urge us not only to passively arrive at peace, sit still, be real quiet, it'll come, peace will come. That's not what the Bible says. It says you're going to have to work after this. Labor for it. Cultivate it. Nourish it. Maintain it or it will be lost. So I say obtaining and maintaining unity must be among our primary and consistent labors as a church. Obtaining and maintaining unity must be among your primary and consistent labors as a church member. Now, I do want to pick up this subject again next Lord's Day because I think it's extremely important. But as I begin to think through this truth, begin to meditate upon this truth, obtaining and maintaining unity ought to be among our uh, primary and consistent labors as a church, as a church member, me as a church member. As I begin to think about that, these types of questions came to my mind that I want to try to address. What is unity? A lot of people talk about unity. A lot of people are actually really united over stuff that doesn't matter. What type of unity are we talking about? Why are there divisions? What are the various degrees of division? What are the degrees of unity? What are the primary areas where unity is a necessity? Are there various levels of unity? What are the methods by which we might attain unity? What are the tools that we can use to attain unity? How can we handle division in a unifying way? And Again, I hope to answer some of those. For today, I'll close with this, this application. As we prepare for a deeper consideration of this subject of church unity, here's the application. Commit to pray something along the lines of Psalm 139, 23 and 24 as often as the Lord will bring it to your mind. Commit to pray this prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words... This is the the application. The doctrine, we need to pursue unity. The application, start with this. Ask your Heavenly Father, through the work of His indwelling, soul-searching, sin-revealing Spirit, to search you and reveal to you anything, whether it's word, whether it's thought, whether it's deed, whether it's belief, whether it's whatever it might be, anything in you that is actually antithetical to the unity of this congregation. Say, God, show it to me. I don't, I don't want to be the cause of division. I don't want to go down that pathway. I desire a multi-generational work of God in this church. I desire that the church be united together for years and years and years. So if there's anything in me that might be causing a division or might could lead to a division, show it to me. Reveal it to me. Do you hold grudges against others? for past sins that are just still there? Do you have differing opinions from others which you have allowed to puff you up and reduce them in your own mind? I hold this view. They don't hold that view. That clearly means I'm better than them and they're worse than me. I'm smarter than them and they're not as smart as me. Do you have a certain few people that you get along with while you ignore everybody else? Do you assume that you are insignificant to the life of this church? Thinking like that will destroy a church. What if we all thought that each of us was utterly insignificant? Eventually we'd get to the point where we'd say, why even try? Are there certain individuals in this church that you could do without? Are you lazy in your study of truth? Are you you content with second-hand theology? 
You say, what does that got to do with unity? Well, if we're, if we're going to be united around something, I, I, I venture to say the truth of God's Word ought to be the, one of those things. Well, if you're, not, if you're lazy in your own study of theology, how can you be unified? Well, I just, I, I'm, just, I'm with you fellas. Whatever y'all say, I'm with you. Eventually, that's, that's, that's not going to toe the line. That's not going to be a very strong net when pressure is applied from the outside or the inside. Are you lazy in pursuing deeper friendships with other people? Are there personality quirks or even moral inconsistencies in others that you find yourself dwelling on as you drive home on the Lord's Day evening and rather than pray for them or pray for your own soul, you let bitterness creep in, even if ever so slightly. I'm not bitter. I just want to think about this and how much I don't like a, this thing about this person until I get home. And, and, and what are we really good at justifying that? No, I, I just want to... I, I just love them and I just hate to see that they're just so annoying to me every week. We would justify it. But that'll stir up a root of, of bitterness in us. How often do you thank God for the gifts and graces that are at work in other people here? When was the last time you said, Father, I thank you that you sent blank, name the person, to this church. I thank you that you used so-and-so in that conversation, whatever it was, at this time, this place, that you used them to, as a means of grace to me, to strengthen me, to encourage me, to help me. When was the last time you did that? So these are, these are things that, that they don't come to our minds very often, but it's a part of laboring after unity. They, they need to be in our minds and our, our thoughts. So those, those are just some things that, that came into my mind um, as I search my own heart. So pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Test me. Test my thoughts. Test my attitudes. Test my deeds. And see if there be anything in me that is opposed to the unity that you desire for your church. Show it to me. I think we should pray, Lord, let me see how hideous it is. Let me see how contrary this is to my Savior, who I know is altogether lovely. Anything contrary to Him ought to be utterly hideous to us. Show it to me that I might detest it. I don't, rec- I, I, I don't detest it like I should. I can name it as a sin. I can say that it's not right, but I don't detest it. It's, it's the very opposite of my Savior. And yet for some reason, I can deal with it in my own life. I can allow it to continue. Ask the Lord to make it, help you to see it as hideous. And then ask Him to lead you in the right way, the, the everlasting way. Ask Him to strengthen you to seek pardon and endeavor after obedience. That, that's what repentance is. It's easy to name it. It's easy to say it. I could stand here all day and list the, the various ways in, in which we might all think and act that would lead to division or are not Christ-like in us. That doesn't do us a bit of good if we're not willing to actually pursue actual repentance from those sins. Talking about, talking about and admitting sin doesn't help anybody. It just helps us. It sort of it puts a, a fluffy cotton bed around all of us in our sin. And we use it when we go away from one another. Well, I'm not so bad because so-and-so said that too. The pastor, he listed all those things. I know if he listed them, that's because he knew they were in his own mind. And if he's doing it, he's the pastor, well, then I must be fine. It doesn't do us any good if we're not willing to seek true repentance, to seek God's help. So, so let that be your prayer. Just, that's the application. Commit to praying this way and trust that the Lord will answer our prayers through His Word, by His Spirit, that He'll strengthen us and He'll use our study to unite us as a congregation. One passage of Scripture that I think of often, David was a a prophet and a shepherd. There was another shepherd prophet named Amos. In Amos chapter 3, verse 12, again, this is a, a shepherd. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he's a shepherd like David. He's speaking from what he knows. Amos 3.12, thus says the Lord, As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, 
So shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. And he's talking about the remnant. But it's just amazing to think of a man so endearingly bound to his flock that even if he only gets two legs or a piece of an ear, he's going to get them from a lion. The, sheep, the sheep's gone, but he's not stopping until he gets every last remnant of that piece that belongs to him. Now that, that's an amazing thought. Uh, of course, we look to Christ, the greater shepherd, who, so that none of his sheep would perish, endured suffering and wrath in our place. Uh, the good shepherd lays down his life, his life, for the sheep. Imagine that kind of shepherd, so endearingly bound to his sheep that he says, I'll die. And that's what we have in Christ. So as we come to the Lord's table, we, we are to fix our attention upon that supreme work, the cross of Christ. The book of Mark chapter 14 says, And as they were eating, He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And so as we see the bread broken and dispensed to the people of God, we are reminded again of the Good Shepherd whose physical body was broken, was beaten, lacerated, and endured the wrath of God for sinners.